Over the past few weeks, the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission has posted a dozen oral history interviews with some of the pioneers who helped establish the nation's first judicial commission committed to racial and ethnic fairness in the courts 30 years ago. Today we'll close out the series with an interview with Joyce Y. Hartsfield, the former executive director of the commission who can share a perspective gleaned from over 20 years with the commission. I'm John Carr, Senior Advisor for Strategic and Technical Communications. Uh, Joyce, thank you for your time. Last year, Jay Johnson's report showed that racial and ethnic bias in the courts remains a problem, and in fact, uh, much of what he found last year mirrored what Franklin Williams found in the late 80s. So what has been achieved? What, what, have, we, what have we accomplished? Well, the impact on the court system overall for the commission has been positive. I think that the administration has always been supportive of the commission as an integral part of the court structure. But looking back, I believe that the commitment needed to be to have more of a staff in order to have a full functioning commission. You know, New York State um, is a huge state. You know, it runs from the, you know, east all the way to Montauk. You know, you go north, you're up at the Quebec. You know, you go west, you're over at the Ontario. So I think that there probably needed to be more staff rather than a small staff in the city. Because initially when I was hired, my position was a 50% time position, which was half time, and the person was a full time, um, like an administrative assistant. And I think, and although you have the commissioners all working, but they also are working at full time jobs, full time jobs as judges and full time judges as clerks or security forces. And therefore, you don't have an enormous amount of time to really do all the things that should have been done. So I think looking back, that the commission really needed a more uh, supportive staff in order to make things work more effectively. Oh, that's um, interesting. Now, now, now they do I, they do have a little more of a staff. I mean, obviously, you it, at a certain point became full time, and uh, Marilyn uh, Nicholas Brewster was full time. Only for the year that Carlene was on uh, maternity leave. Other than that, I was still either sixty percent, and at some point maybe eighty percent, maybe the last couple of years. But never over sixty percent for the greater period of my time there with the commission. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when she went on maternity leave, I was at that point. I said, you know, I need because uh, we were doing that program with Jay Johnson. I said we really need to have me on full time if we don't have any other uh, assistants here in the office. And sometimes they would let someone from HR do some of the, um, you know, administrative work as far as you know putting together and typing reports. But I, I, and looking back on it over the years, I recognize that was not an office that could function at its full capacity unless it had more supportive uh, staff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it needed a full-time, dedicated, committed staff. Yes, yes. Okay. It needs a full-time commission member like um, Mary Lynn is. It needs a full-time associate counsel. And then it needs a full-time sort of analyst, if not two. I was thinking this through the other day, and I was saying to myself, with the state being so large, it also needed perhaps two satellite offices. And with the virtual and before, you know, Zoom um, and the teams, you have somewhere through that third or fourth district or moving towards the Canadian border, you needed a person who knew that area, 
knew those AJs personally because they worked with them. And then maybe somewhere down near Binghamton, a satellite office with one person. I think that that one person could have developed more trust with employees rather than you see them once every year, once every two years to meet with the administrative judge. And when you met with the administrative judge at that point, you aren't really meeting with all of the employees. So you never really get the feel for the rest of the state once you come outside of New York City in the five boroughs. Oh, sure. Um, sure. And I think if they had a satellite person, perhaps someone could have um, seen earlier some of the tension that was beginning to build within the court system. But I think that was always there. There was always an issue with court officers. Uh, I can't say there was always an issue with court clerks, but there was always some rub with court officers. And I think when people are afraid of losing their jobs, getting promotions, if they report certain things, I think there's uh, a tendency to uh, just stay in your lane and not create any problems. Um, now you I might... think the commission has had a positive impact on the legal community. In most programs that we did, we always partnered with the bar associations within that area. Um, we always met with the administrative judges within the judicial district. And although we published newspapers, uh, newsletters, I think it was interesting that in the Jay Johnson report, how many people were unaware of the commission and what they did. And I just think that another, the um, COVID-19 pandemic has probably been the civil cloud uh, in, in, a, in, in, in a, the, the silver lining in the cloud in the sense that it has forced people to be able to say, I can log on to this program for an hour or two because I don't have to travel from one part of the state to the next. And therefore, you can have more of an impact on reaching more employees within the court system. Mm -hmm. Now, I find it interesting that you mentioned uh, court officers because, you know, the initial report indicated that the conduct, behavior, and attitude of some court officers was a problem back in the 1980s, and the Jay Johnson report found the same thing in 2020. And, you know, I, I stress that as some court officers who display racist or racially inappropriate tendencies then and now. But why is this a continuing problem all these years later? Is it a matter of training, culture, hiring more court officers of color, all of the above? What do you think? regardless of how they wish to see themselves as having a lot of different ethnic groups, I do believe that they live in clusters. And you you go to church with your cluster, you go to school with your cluster, and if a cluster is predominant in an area and then the hiring begins to reflect cluster, you can go to certain counties and there's a predominant group that's being hired within that cluster that's getting promoted. And because there's not really a lot of intermingling, I say, among people out, even, even within their jobs, but definitely outside of their jobs, they go to their respective homes and they go to their respective neighborhoods. And I don't think the neighborhoods are that integrated and therefore the schools are not that integrated. And then if you go to a school that's predominantly white, you will have a small percentage of other kids within other ethnic groups within that but not enough, I think, to make a difference of how people relate to each other. And I think it's easy to just go back to whatever it is that you believe about people, you know, either through TV, and it's probably been promoted even more through social media, 
uh, because now I think that people feel more comfortable saying and doing things that they would not have said so openly and vocally uh, before. And if you allow that behavior, it only intensifies. And once it intensifies, it's like it's like how do you go back and get a grip on it? So I think that attitudes do not change from 30, 40 years ago. And now I think that it's been allowed to be done more openly and with much more of a cavalier attitude, you know, mm -hmm. at least through the last two examples. One example which brought about the Jay Johnson report and investigation and then a subsequent issue that happened in the Bronx. Um, but I do believe that you may not be able to control how people feel or what they wish to say, but just as the judge, chief judge had an excellent initiative, you heard zero policy initiative, initiative or zero tolerance must be uh, fully implemented towards employees who wish to act in a manner that's detrimental to the court system, detrimental to the litigants, and detrimental to the uh, public that they serve. Mm -hmm. so and I think when people recognize there's something at stake for them to lose, then perhaps that curbs behavior rather than you try to um, culturally try to change their behavior. You know, I mean, I'm not sure that programs does it, you know, because sometimes people feel like, well, I'm being left out or this group doesn't deserve that. You know, it, it's always an attack from some way, but zero tolerance makes them realize there's something at stake, and therefore if you don't want to lose what's at stake, you begin to curb your behavior and act in a manner that's appropriate towards people. Mm. So maybe if you can't change attitudes in a certain generation, maybe you can change behaviors, and then maybe with those behaviors that are no longer part of the culture, the next generation is a little more advanced. I think that's true, and I think that probably we see that happening uh, among each generation on how they participate. You know, I think when we saw them, a different generation participating in movements throughout 2020 when they saw things that they thought was unfair or unjust, I, I believe there was a greater participation, so attitudes had been impacted upon by different people, and I think you continue to make those um, impacts, and and therefore you'll keep moving forward, you know. But it's like teaching school, I think. You can have an impact upon a certain group of people, a certain number of people, but if you had a class of 24 students and one was very disruptive, you, you'll feel at the end of the day that you didn't accomplish what you wished to accomplish because that one was constantly demanding all of your attention or preventing you from getting across to the other 23. So I think sometimes a small number makes it more difficult to feel like you've achieved the goals that you want to achieve and the attitudes have been changed so that you can view it and, and weigh it for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when Ambassador Williams set up the commission, he was adamant that it had to be independent, and he refused to accept any funding from the court system. You know, today, of course, the commission is funded by the court system. Its chairs have always been judges employed by the court system. The executive director is an employee of the court system. Is the commission able to maintain the independence that Franklin Williams had in mind when its leaders answer to the people the commission seeks to hold accountable, essentially? Uh, as I was uh, thinking about that issue, that's a very interesting question because I do believe that when he wrote his first report, he felt like he wasn't being asked because it was received 
with some controversy. But at least he knew no one was trying to make him bend the facts or, or colored in such a manner that it came out rosier than it need to. But I can probably at uh, it's not easy when you work for a court system that you rely upon it for your livelihood. But I would say that at no times while I was an employee of the court system and the executive director of the commission did anyone make me think that they were shutting down an issue. Now, how do you go about shutting down issues? You can do it openly or you can just not act on it, you know. Um, so it's, it's never openly issues shut down, but there was always an issue about uh, who were the policymakers in the court, who were the people making those policy. And when I say the 11th floor, it's the administrative offices. What did the 11th floor look like as far as diversity? So you can keep saying that something needs to be different there, but if it isn't reflected there, then you wonder why they don't see it as you see it. You know, they look through their eyes and think it's, it's functioning fine. I look through my eyes and I recognize that people need more diversity on the 11th floor. I always felt that, you know. And I think when very left, although they have a council that's of color, I just don't think the policy makers within that 11th floor had enough diversity to it. So no, you were never openly shut down. You were never made to think your ideas were not worthy of, of uh, consideration. But I do believe that if you look at the policy makers, and that impacts how people think things are happening. Hmm. I believe in your career you worked for three chief judges and uh, three, four, five uh, chief administrative judges, all of them white. Uh, did any of them ever tell you to back off or to sugarcoat a problem that they would rather would prefer to sweep under the rug? They would never tell the executive director to sugarcoat a problem. Uh, I just don't think that's how businesses work. You know, um, I do believe that. The direct contact initially is always with whoever the chair was at that time. And the bulk of my time was spent with Judge Douglas being the chair, who had a very good relationship with all of the chief judges. Um, so that never happens like that. But as I said before, if you bring issues to the forefront of what you think should be different, you know, let's say the structure of the, of the security forces, should that be different? and represent more diversity? Should the 11th floor be more diverse? Should the Office of uh, Diversity and Inclusion have a larger staff? You can't study that, you know, you can't study that issue for three, four years and not give them a bigger staff so they can have more of an impact. You can't then say when Jay Johnson comes out with this report, okay, therefore we need to put more people in that office. So you have to do it before there's an explosion in order to avoid an explosion. So by not doing it, it says to me, you haven't taken that particular office as seriously as you take other offices. Mm. And that was constantly addressed with the administration. Look, that office cannot function with so little people. I didn't realize that I couldn't function with so little people, but I definitely knew the diversity and inclusion office which was doing all the outreach couldn't function with so little people. And there was never a point where there was talk about giving staff, but there wasn't a point where I think sufficient staff was given to make that office work. So you rank things on what you think is important. And what is important is how you staff a particular uh, office. And if you don't staff it where it can operate fully, then it says that you haven't taken it seriously. Mm. Do you think we're edging toward a time when the 
uh, commission and this whole issue is taken more seriously. I mean, they've uh, obviously put a lot of uh, effort into recruiting Jay Johnson and, and, and setting him loose to do what he did and bringing in Alfonso David. And there's, there's, do you, do you see a strong commitment there that maybe wasn't there as much in the past? I think there was always a commitment to try to do things to improve the court system as far as diversity and inclusion. There was a, a point where they did more reporting back on what their hiring policy was like, and they slowly eroded that away. There was a, a point where, and that's, this second point stayed the same, where they made sure that there was a certain amount of diversity on the hiring uh, and selection committee for certain job titles, and that stayed in place. Um, there was a point where commission members were also selected to sit on those panels so they could have input, so that stayed in place. So there was many places where things stayed in place or was added to to make it a better system. But it still is a difficult system to make work if there's five people and you only have one person really representing diversity, unless you count the other person as a woman who may be white representing diversity. So if the administrative judge in, in that area wants a certain person to have a job after they've interviewed all the people, and they vote for that person, then you got the rest of the staff that's out there, which probably makes up at least two more of the seats. And do you think they're really in a position and want to go against the administrative judge? I would say not. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, so three or more feel that way and one doesn't, and maybe one and a half doesn't because the other one's on the fence. So it becomes a difficult thing to override, even though you're having uh, a presence on committees. You know, it still is difficult because there's a there's a grooming in the court system, and I don't think everyone gets groomed equally. And if you don't get groomed, then you're probably not in that tier to move up to the next level. And I always thought that what um, the court system needed was within their different in judicial district was, who are you grooming to take over the next position? You know, and it could be two, three people you're grooming. It doesn't have to be one, and it doesn't have to be necessarily solely a person of color, but you got to look and see what the pipeline is looking like so that people have an equal opportunity to advance. Mm. Um, but there's a, there's a, a little bit of a, everybody wants that job. You know, all groups want that job, whatever the job is. There's always a, a large competition for that job. So, you know, you got to really, um, it's hard to, I, it's not hard to be fair. It's hard to look through your eyes and determine what's fair. And it's hard to look through my eyes and determine what's fair. Because I'm judging it by all the values that I grew up with and all of the discrimination that I saw. Um, like we had a program with eight of my friends from college and we were celebrating our fathers who were all deceased. Uh, and they were talking about the jobs their dads did. And I think the thing that was, and one of the girls began to cry on the phone, and we're all beyond 65. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting that when you heard what they did, one, one father did some inventing of some different things that he did. Uh, another father had, he was an electrician, and he had a business where was in hotels where he sold magazines and newspapers. And you really realize that some were able to use the GI Bill, others were not. And you realize that, with the proper opportunity and without that op- 
weighing these young men down. They were young at that point. Down. They were born between 19. Some were born as early as 1912, and the latest one was born was 19, I think, 25. Uh, so therefore, you're, you're you're dealing with a very racist part of the history of America for black people. And we all realize that the, the takeaway for us was that what would it have been like if you didn't have that level of oppression guiding these men's lives and where they could live and the jobs they could have had and the bank opportunities to apply for a loan and start your own business? You know, so you never were where you were supposed to because there was always something that was stood in the way. So the takeoff is, is that I think within the court system, you know, everybody has an idea of where they want to go within the court system, and some people are mentored to get there, and I think that others uh, have a harder time because they don't have the mentors, and you just got to constantly push forward to, to sort of say there needs to be more equity done uh, within the court system and within the jobs. It sounds, like there, it sounds like there's a continuing need for the commission to actually be somewhat of a thorn in the side of the Office of Court Administration and, and to always be on top of this issue and to monitor and advocate, right? I don't think you, I wouldn't use the word thorn in their side because a thorn in your side does not produce great results for you. <laughs> you know, if it's a thorn and it's prickling you, you want to remove the thorn and throw it away. I think you just want someone to gently guide you and try to see the world at some point how you see it. And you and you, and you want to appreciate the difficulties that the administration has in moving different agendas forward. And I did appreciate that. But at the same time, I think they needed to be more proactive and more affirmative in taking bold stance and dealing with diversity and inclusion. That's you know, a so I think there's a constant need to monitor, a constant need to present good programs, a constant need to have, you know, issues of cultural competency comes up. And, and I think that you recognize that by what people want to say on social media about other people and what things that they want to say, you know, when they think no one's listening. So, and I do believe that the commitment to have done the report, to have zero tolerance, and then to have... Alfonso David follow up on it is a good way, and, he, and and all of that was outside the court system. So it wasn't like, you know, someone within the court system is saying, uh, this needs to be done. You have an independent outside person says this needs to be done, that they have to address it to, that their jobs are not tied into it, or their work relationship is not tied into it, it's separate and distinct. So there's a need to continue the monitor, monitor, monitoring, but there's also a need to really try to do the best you can to deal with the public that you have to deal with and with all the litigants. You make an interesting point about them bringing in people from the outside, Jay Johnson and Alfonso David, uh, which of course is where this all started, you know, 30 years ago. Exactly. Well, I, it seems like, you know, you, you always are my optimistic, uh, <laughs> No, you really are. You're always my optimistic person whenever I'm thinking that, mm, this is this is not good. And when you just said a few minutes ago, you know, that there's a change in people's attitude. And I think that you're absolutely correct. I think that what you have to veer away from is seeing the negative. You know, it's like my sisters used to say when one of us would get off of a point and the other sister would say, 
you know, uh, Joyce, um, stay on the high road because the low road is too full. So I think that in order to appreciate whatever strides have been made, you do have to stay on the high road. And you can't be on the low road of being negative about things. You can only try to be positive to bring about more positive changes. So I think what we're looking to do is to bring about more positive changes and to take more people along with us on that positive road. Because if you don't, if you do it in a manner that people aren't feeling accepting or understood, then it won't take you as far as you want to go. Yeah, you don't have to do it in an adversarial way, really. You know? Exactly. Now, in, in and, your, that, and that's a, and that's an art. That's an art that I think you perfected better than me. I don't know. I don't know about that. But uh, what what in your more than two decades as executive director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commissioner are you most proud of? I probably am. Initially, when I was doing the uh, the position, I probably was proud of the fact of when I look back on it and some of the pictures. I was proud of the people that we introduced <clears throat> the court system to when we would hold programs. And going back over 25 years and starting, you know, from Jay Johnson, I mean, some, some very important and well-known figures were introduced to the court system where they were allowed to attend. And usually my administrative judges would let so many of their employees off. You know, to be able to be exposed to a lecture from Jay Johnson, Donna Brazil, we had Commissioner William Bratton in speaking along with Ricky Kleeman. Maya Wiley came and did a program for us on um, implicit bias a long time ago when Eric Adams was a captain of the police. He came in and did an issue about police uh, stop and frisk issues. Uh, Johnny Cochran came and spoke. Marion Wright Edelman spoke. Professor Paul Butler. So we've had really, over the course of my career, there some outstanding people to present to the court system for them to hear different points of view. Um, but probably one of the things near the end of my career with the court system I was most proud of was one day I'm talking with an employee and he mentions that he's a, a temporary employee. Well, I knew he was a temporary employee, but I didn't know that 10 years later he was still a temporary employee, which meant no health benefits no pension plan, and, you know, you can contribute to your own IRA or whatever it is that you want to contribute to, but no no state-supported 401 or 457 plan. And then when we began to talk, it was 14 or 15 people within the OCA administration that had temporary positions from anywhere between three years or more and 10 or 12 years. And so there was a meeting with HRA and the administration, and eventually they got all those people transferred over from temp jobs to full-time jobs. And I think they were very happy about it uh, to a certain extent because to a certain extent because now they were full-time employees, they could eventually qualify for a pension. Now, the unhappy part about it was they had to start out as a new employee. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it beats where they were, but it should have happened long before then, if yeah. you understand that. I, I I understand this fully. You, you you were able to get them on the right track, but you, but you couldn't you couldn't put them as far ahead on the track as they ought to have been on that journey. Right, and I did not deal with it, recognizing that there were so many. Because when you look at people, you don't know that they're part time, that, that they're temporary employees. No. And uh, and I guess on a certain extent, for whatever reason, 
they were happy to be temporary employees. I guess they never complained about it to me. But once they got to be, the, the ball got to roll to make them permanent employees, I realized that there was a certain amount of uh, wishing that it had happened earlier. But I was glad that when I left there that there was at least 14 or more people that uh, the commission was able to move from a temporary basis to a full-time basis. And then, you know, when any of my friends look at the film uh, that was done on Franklin Williams' life, you know, it's just absolutely incredible. And other people want to do films in their states when I talk to them. So I think that, you know, you haven't won a telly award and, and Chris haven't won a telly award for putting that whole program together. Because when I look at it from the beginning to the end and all the different steps we made to get to that end, I'm very proud that we were able to have that as a... Uh, an everlasting uh, tribute to the commission. And so am I, and it was a, a joy working with you. One of the most uh, enjoyable things in my career was working working with you on that project for those, those few years. Now, as they say in uh, the movie, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Joyce, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for your service and all you've done for the, the people of New York. <laughs>